Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll hear the policy ideas of some college students who recently took part in an annual fiscal challenge competition where teams from around the country devised and defended their own plans for putting the federal budget on a sustainable path. For some expert perspective on these plans, I'll be joined today by Concord Coalition National Field Director Phil Smith and Communications Director of Harris, both of whom attended the competition finals in Washington, D.C. And I'm also glad to welcome back to the show Diane Lim, a familiar voice on this program as the economist mom. Diane is now policy director for the Democratic staff of the Congressional Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness in Growth. That is a mouthful of a committee. <laughs> uh, and Diane was one of the uh, competition's judges. Okay, so uh, Phil and Diane, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thanks. Thank you, Bob. Um, Thanks, Bob. You know, every week on this show, we talk about fiscal policy and its effect on the uh, nation's future. And we talk with policymakers and experts. So um, it's kind of interesting this week and maybe a little refreshing to get some input from the people who have the most at stake, which is the, uh, the today's younger generation. So this fiscal challenge that we all observed in Washington, uh, we had uh, the finalists, six teams of finalists, and they were from various universities uh, around the country, presented and, and defended their plans. Um, now, the CBO is projecting that the debt to GDP ratio is going to double within the next 30 years. So as kind of a, an initial goal, the, the, they were trying to stabilize the debt to GDP ratio, but they could pick their own goal uh, if they thought that that wasn't the right one. So um, let's, uh, let's plunge in here. Diane, you were a, a, a judge of this. Do you think they understood the magnitude of the challenge before them? Um, yeah, I think um, they had studied it well. They, um, they really um, ate up a bunch of CBO reports, I can tell you that. I'm sure they looked at <laughs> Concord Coalition issue briefs as well. Um, and so certainly the magnitude of the problem in terms of what the debt projections look like over the next 30 years, they're very well aware of that because that's how they had to set their goals for stabilizing debt to GDP. Um, and most of them, you know, know, knew right away that it's a big goal to get down to just just 100 percent to GDP <laughs> ratio, which most of them, you know, we used to think, talk about 100 percent debt to GDP as like, whoa, we can't get there. Right. And now we're talking about, wow, that like cuts it in half, you know, and so um, they uh, because the long term outlook has changed so dramatically over the past few years and because um, stabilizing debt to GDP 
is is really challenging and they, you know, just to cut it by as much as most of these teams did. Um, it's, it's very challenging. And so they quickly learned, I'm sure by studying like, Oh, how much does each of these big major proposals, how much does it do to cut down the debt? I'm sure they quickly realized that, um, the problem has gotten more challenging because you need those really big, budgetary items. You need to do something about the big stuff. You can't just tinker around the edges now more than ever. It used to, we've said, we've said this for decades, right? That you can't just trip, cut waste, fraud and abuse, right? That kind of thing, foreign aid. But, you know, now it's even more apparent that you can't even just cut big ticket items in the budget. That doesn't even look sustainable anymore. It's like, okay, we got to do something fundamentally different to our economy to really kind of raise the base, the, the, the productivity of the whole economy so that we have more of a revenue base to draw from. And I think all of the student teams really recognize that this is no longer just like adding things up that are already on a shelf. And so I really appreciated their um, willingness to take on such a big challenge and to cut well, the debt to GDP in half. Most of yeah, them, or more I mean so. that. Uh, I want to get back to that uh, economic uh, point because I think it's really important. But on the uh, just, just kind of like the the nuts and bolts of the traditional stuff, and it, it is amazing when you think about it. Uh, you know, thirty years ago when the Concord Coalition started, the idea of a hundred percent debt to GDP ratio right. would have seemed catastrophic, and cutting right. it from two hundred to one hundred is just like. Uh, um, would you know? <laughs> right. I mean, it's just it's just amazing the uh, the the difference in the challenge. Um, let's hear from one of the teams now. This is Zachary Roten and Phil Holmes, who made up the two person team from American University. They spoke with uh, Concord Coalition Communications Director Arv Harris on the day of the fiscal challenge competition. All of our proposals, every single one that we listed, we went with. Is this easily passable? And if not, what needs to be done to make it easy, easily passable? Because we see a lot in the discussion around fiscal policy that there's tons of proposals that people put out every year. People put out tons of white papers saying we could do this, this, and this, but they're just not politically viable. People on either side of the aisle won't support it. Uh, so all of our proposals, we went about trying to focus on that. And at the same time, we were trying to focus on making sure that what we're doing has a lasting effect up until 2050. Uh, one of the areas we looked at in particular was a carbon tax. Uh, that carbon tax was critical to us because regardless of what happens with the deficit and the GDP effects of different proposals, if, the, if it's true what the scientists are saying that the effect of global warming will be, uh, the effect on the GDP and the economy will be far worse versus any of our other proposals combined. So addressing those sort of things were really important to us. So in your carbon tax proposal, how much does it bring in per year? And if you remember these numbers off the top yeah. of your head, and then over the span of the uh, next 30 years, um, what would be the change on the debt? Over 10 years, it was about $1 trillion. Uh, I can't, it's difficult to tell you beyond 10 terms just because once you get past the 10-year timeline, economic numbers start getting a little funky. Yeah. Uh, but regardless of how much it the carbon tax serves two points uh it discourages what is a 
a behavior that is detrimental to the common good, which is the production of carbon, while also providing a government, re uh, government revenue source. That's why we found it such an attractive way of raising revenue, because it's doubly beneficial for the economy. So that's why we went about proposing it. But in terms of 2050 numbers and its effect on GDP, I can't exactly tell you. Talk about some of the other adjustments or any uh, you know, for instance, to programs like Medicare or Social Security, did you propose any changes to benefits or eligibility that uh, might result in some net savings over this span of time? We did not really focus on the idea of the benefits or who qualifies for these programs as much as we purely focused on just the fiscal and monetary element of these programs. So that is, uh, that's obviously a whole other discussion and something that in a final policy proposal you would have to tie in to it. But for the sake of our presentation, what we were trying to accomplish, we didn't particularly focus on reworking who is eligible for Medicare or how their care is provided for. We, Go ahead, Ty. We, did, uh, we talked about uh, some measures that changed things around inflation measurement. Uh, for example, we took aim at CPI. Uh, this is one of my biggest pet peeves. For everybody listening out there, that's the Consumer Price Index. Is that correct? Yes. One of my biggest pet peeves is the over-reliance we have in the media on government and government on CPI. There's a lot of flaws with CPI. It overmeasures some areas more than it probably should. So one of our proposals was moving over towards more of a chain CPI that addresses some of these issues that are known with some of the uh, data that you get out of CPI and gives you more of an accurate assessment. And just doing small things like that, moving over from a way of a uh, maybe inaccurate way of measuring inflation to a more accurate way, can bring in hundreds of billions of dollars just by doing small things like that. That was Zachary Roden and Phil Holmes, two students from American University who participated in the recently held Fiscal Challenge Competition. They competed with teams from all over the country in the national finals held recently in Washington, D.C. With us now on Facing the Future is Diane Lim, who served as one of the judges for the fiscal challenge. Did you find uh, that they used both spending cuts and revenue increases to, to get their goals? And, and, yeah. and if they did, 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 did they weigh more heavily on one side or the other? Well, um, it depended on the team. Some teams that took on this sort of broader strategy of let's think of new novel ways to grow the economy, um, then some of those teams probably weighed more heavily on actually spending increases and not just spending cuts, right? So that's a new thing for the fiscal challenge is to contemplate spending increases as helping the long-term budget outlook. But, you know, they had the traditional big things like, you know, reforming Social Security, raising the retirement age, raising the tax base for Social Security. And they had the different teams. All of them had some kind of tax policy in it as well. Some of them took the strategy of just raising marginal tax rates um, and others talked about actually broadening the tax base, either by, you know, getting rid of some of the things, um, the the tax preferences in the budget, like itemized deductions, or by actually adding things to the federal tax base, like carbon, you know, car so some of them pr um, proposed carbon taxes. And that was a, obviously, that's a big revenue raiser. So um, it depended on the team. If the team was just raising marginal tax rates a little bit, then they were a little light on the revenue increase side. Um, Social Security reform, um, and healthcare, Medicare reforms might have done more. Um, you know, 
there's not much more you can do other than those big ticket items. We've always talked about them at Concord, right? It's like broaden the tax base, raise marginal rates a little bit, um, you reform Social Security and Medicare because those are the big entitlement programs that are connected to the aging of the population. Um, so basic stuff, some interesting novel proposals thrown in there that we as long-term budget people are not used to seeing in a budget. Well, I want to get back to those. <laughs> I think I know where you're going with at least one of them. But here is another two-person team from Muskingum University in Ohio. This is Antonia Snyder and Jacob Unteed, who spoke with Concord Coalition Communications Director of Harris on the day of the fiscal challenge competition. Anybody doesn't want their benefits taken away. So we start off with Social Security and Medicare where they're not restricting benefits. We're trying to allocate benefits better to people that need it and try and protect it for future people like ourselves, where Social Security was expected to be almost nothing uh, in the next decade or two. Um, and then we kind of funded, we created some policies where we funded policies that we actually really like cared about, like the kidney. Uh, the kidney one with removing distance incentives was really interesting and then trying to invest into renewable energy to try to help protect the planet for our future kids and generations. What about you, Antonio? What stood out for you in terms of your, your approach to, to, to trying to get our budgets more, more sustainable and eliminate as much deficit as we can and try to reduce that uh, the debt to GDP ratio. Yeah, so just to piggyback on what Jacob said, um, we were trying to go with things that wouldn't completely impact one group of people. We kind of wanted everyone to get their fair share, I guess, because, I mean, to solve this problem, people, some groups are not going to be happy. So we took that into consideration. We also... Um, tried to take a unique approach to some policies that would maybe not reduce the debt to GDP ratio as much, but they were very unique and um, special to us. He had kind of already discussed it, but one of my favorite policies that we did was the removing the disincentives of kidney donation just because people who are uh, suffering from end-stage renal disease are qualified for Medicare. So increasing living kidney donation rather than just using most kidneys for transplants from deceased donors, we are trying to get more uh, donations from living donors. So that was one of my personal favorites. What about revenue? Uh, obviously, we're going to need more revenue. What were some of your revenue ideas? We chose to go with a VAT tax. Uh, Value-added tax, yes. which is the VAT. So, so basically a tax on, in a sense, it's sort of a national sales tax, right? Like a, a, a tax on buying stuff. Um, correct. And also corporations will have to pay taxes along the way. So the burden isn't just on the consumer anymore. Uh, most of Europe has already switched over to value-added tax. And... It just help alleviates the burden of sales tax. And then we also created a carbon tax, which is $25 per ton which with an annual increase. And that will help kind of fund the renewable energy investment. So we're trying to eliminate the bad effect with, while also propping up the good effect with that as well. And then we also did eliminate the step-up basis um, or creating step-up basis where uh, ultra-wealthy families aren't allowed to give their wealth to their next generation without, and then the next generation being able to sell it on the new costs, so they'll have to pay tax on the entire gain rather than just after the death. 
and then as well as eliminating automatic deductions, which we are already making a shift as a country to not using that. And within the next 10 years, I believe that we'll reach only 5% of the country using itemized deductions. So we were just going to eliminate that and then just keep with the increase of the standardized deduction and also simplifying tax refunds as well. Part of the problem with coming up with some of these new revenue ideas is they don't really make they don't generate enough money. They don't generate enough revenue. Now, it's not necessarily the case with a carbon tax or, or, or a value-added tax, but did you have ideas, for instance, for revenue that you say, oh, this is a great idea. When you looked it up and then you did the math, it didn't really add up to that much. Did that come up for you as a, as a thing, uh, Jake? Yes. So during our pres- first presentation, which we had to submit to get to the finals, uh, we had alcohol and tobacco and tax where we're just increasing it based on inflation because it hasn't really changed over the recent years. So, And we're like, oh, that just kind of makes sense that they should follow inflation. And it came up to like a change of maybe 3% in the debt to GDP. So we just ended up eliminating that so we can save on time for more important subjects. That was Jacob Antied and Antonia Snyder from Muskingum University in Ohio, who recently participated in the Fiscal Challenge competition with teams from all over the country. I'm joined today on Facing the Future by Diane Lim, one of the Fiscal Challenge judges, and Concord Coalition National Field Director, Phil Smith. Phil, um, you know, you do a lot of our principles and priorities exercises around the country in which students are not necessarily coming up with novel plans, but they're looking at a bunch of choices that, uh, that are prepared by the Congressional Budget Office that we package together and, and, and they make their choices based on those. Um, did you see any fundamental agreements or, or, or disagreements with the, uh, the kinds of choices that uh, students make at our P&P exercises? I saw lots of commonalities. You know, it's just it's so hard to get people to talk about solutions. And, and so many Americans have been lulled into complacency. Um, you know, they can't get past the bumper sticker talk on Facebook, uh, but not the participants of our budget exercises. Right. They dive into it. And that's the commonality I saw with these college students. Um, what struck me was, you know, their incredible uh, substance. And, and they didn't you know, they didn't come up with proposals um, stuffed with gimmicks that would attract wing nuts like we find in our political environment. Right. And that's what happens with our budget exercise around the country, because in PNP, the principles and priorities exercise. Um, we do have time constraints that they don't have. Right. Um, and, and in fact, our most common complaints are, you know, we, we don't have enough time. Uh, we don't uh, have enough information. Uh, if I would have if I could have amended that, you know, I would have voted on that. And those complaints, by the way, we hear from real live members of Congress. Uh, so we know if we hear that in our exercises, that it's sort of an accurate simulation. The thing that was interesting, I think, with these students, with these college students, is they did have a lot of time. Right. They could dig into these issues. They could amend it because they were coming up with their own proposals. Right. And so that was fascinating to me uh, to to listen to them. And and I think, again, it was a good balance. Bob, your question is a good one. You know, they, they recognize that um, clearly we have a debt problem, a, a debt to GDP ratio. It's unsustainable. 
and that the root is is obviously on the spending side, but also we have a revenue challenge. And they talked a lot about that revenue challenge. So, um, but overall, I just their enthusiasm struck me is is just off the charts, and it's so good to see young people uh, dig into these issues. And and and, and I just I, I lost count of the number of policies they were talking about. They do go in, they went into more policies than we go into in PNP because they were talking about the Jones Act, you know. Uh, for example, uh, th- but they did deal with the issues. The that Jones Act, by the way, is an obscure maritime law thing that I actually wrote my law review article about. And it doesn't come up often in fiscal policy debates, <laughs> which was hilarious to me that that came up. And in, in in one of the judges had spent time in the merchant Marines. And, and he I think he was tickled that that came up. But then there uh, 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 there are policy options that they talked about that are in our exercise, things like a more accurate CPI, consumer price and index, uh, raising the age of eligibility for Social Security while keeping early retirement at 62. Um, it was interesting to see you know, them talk about carbon taxes and even tax expenditures. Um, that, well, that's a big kahuna, right, that hardly anybody talks about uh, that we need to talk about more. And we talk about it, obviously, at the Concord Coalition, but I was really glad to hear them talk about that as well. Well, they got into some of the uh, wonky stuff and, and tried to make it, you know, understandable or accessible. That was seemed to be something that they were focused on. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We'll have more from the National Fiscal Challenge Competition after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We're hearing today from teams of college students from across the country who recently competed in the finals for the National Fiscal Challenge in Washington, D.C. Their task was to put the federal budget on a more sustainable path over the next 30 years. Let's hear now from the six-person team from the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. They spoke with Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris. So I think we tried to take a pretty holistic and bipartisan view when constructing our policy. So we kind of looked at both mandatory and discretionary spending. So we looked into some of the big drivers um, of our national debt, which would be Social Security, Medicare, um, defense spending, um, and policies like that. And what about the revenue side? Um, Anybody want to talk to me about a couple of the things that you looked at that were in your presentation? Because the bottom line is we're going to need more revenue. I mean, I think that's that's pretty clear. But getting that uh, can be challenging, both from a dollars and cents point of view and politically can be challenging. So what, what did you look at in terms of revenue? Does anybody want to take that? Yeah. So some of the tax reforms that we looked at were kind of focused on areas where we felt like the government could raise more tax revenue without really affecting behavior, such as um, like closing business tax loopholes, or like we looked at the mortgage interest deduction too, and how that may not necessarily like really affect people's behavior and, and home ownership very much. So we took the approach of looking at policies where we would be able to raise more tax revenue without really um, having any detriment to like social welfare. Do you think it's possible to get the revenue figures that you need without having to impose some pain on somebody? Well, my answer is no, but I think that the way that we tried to approach the problem was to try like spread out what we were raising from people. It wasn't necessarily targeted at uh, the middle class or something like that, the way that uh, value-added tax would have been. Um, that was one policy we considered but dismissed because we thought it was too 
focused on middle class consumption, which is the main driver of the economy. So we tried to look at things like business tax code loopholes uh, that are more um, taken advantage of by uh, wealthy individuals than by uh, small business owners who actually need the deductions. Some of the tax changes are also associated with like Social Security and Medicare, and and those are policies where like yes, there could be some you know there's going to be some negative effects in the short term where people have to pay more in taxes, but there's also long term benefits where you're preserving the solvency of these programs. So um, over the long term, we believe that that is like more beneficial, um, even if there's some some short term tax increases for a lot of people. So uh, I hear you mentioned marijuana. Uh, I think that was in your your presentation in terms of putting a tax on on the sale of marijuana nationally. I'm curious because obviously more and more states are doing that. What was your projection? If you have the number, um, you know, in your head somewhere, how much do you realistically expect that taking such a step would would actually bring in in terms of revenue? So we actually have a figure from the Cato Institute, or sorry, from New Frontier Data, and they said that legalizing marijuana in all 50 states would create at least $131.8 billion in federal tax revenue over eight years. We actually proposed a 15% federal excise tax on marijuana. So the skeptic in me would argue, okay, that's nice, but that might not necessarily move the needle so much, right? So there might be ideas like that that could be politically popular, but that doesn't really get us a ton of revenue. What, how do you re- respond to that? Anybody want to take that? It's a very strong market, first of all, I would say. Um, so we do expect that there would be pretty positive effects, even though a sales tax would probably have some kind of dampening effect on the demand. Um, second of all, I guess I would point to the compounding effect of bringing in some of these new revenues where we expect interest rates to climb uh, pretty high in the next few decades. I think the current projections are very outdated, um, even within the past year at this point. They were expecting 3% interest rates in 10 years. They're already going to be, um, I mean, it's practically at 3% right now on the 10-year treasury uh, today. I think it's like 2.7%. So, uh, when we have even these small shifts in interest rates, they're really compounding to the national debt and adding at an exponential level. So what we're trying to tackle is mitigating uh, some of the borrowing at all. So even though it might not be in and of itself a, uh, a substantial, uh, truly budget-changing effect uh, from just marijuana taxation, I think over time we could see uh, pretty substantial uh, improvements to the situation. All right, so I have a question about Social Security and Medicare since, since you mentioned it. What is the essence of your proposal for making those programs more sustainable so they'll be around for you when you get to be retirement age? Are we talking about perhaps curtailing some of the benefits, changing the eligibility requirements? Um, some of the teams today have talked about some interesting ideas about that, focusing some of the spending on people who need it more than others and that kind of thing. Where did you go with Social Security and Medicare? Does anybody want to take that one? So I think the problem is slightly different for the two. So with Medicare, we saw a lot of 
uh, potential opportunities to, on the spending side, uh, to cut down on some of the excessive expenses. So for that reason, we pursued, um, you know, equalizing payments uh, for treatments regardless of the site of care, uh, since hospitals take advantage of this differential pricing system where they can charge more for using hospital outpatient departments versus, um, you know, regular physician's office or something like that. Uh, so we pursued some of those low-hanging fruit policies. Medicare Advantage, especially since so many people are shifting to that, uh, it'll be about 50% by the end of the decade. Um, so since so many people buy into that program now, it really requires a reform to address how much we are spending on it that we don't have to. Uh, I mean, the estimate currently is probably around 16% uh, of what we should be deflating the payments by, and we're only deflating them by 6% for political reasons, more or less. So on those categories, we saw a real, not easy, I would say, but there, there was a clearly identifiable way to uh, tackle some of these, in addition to raising revenue through the payroll tax to kind of preserve that relationship with the trust fund aspect. With Social Security, it's a little more open-ended. Uh, there are just so many different ways you could adjust it. You could adjust the benefits formula, the cost of living adjustments. You could look at the payroll taxes. Uh, so we looked a lot at trying to minimize the regressivity of uh, reforming the system because part of its benefit is this progressive benefit structure where um, you know people on the lower end of the spectrum have this social safety net where they're not uh, subjected to poverty and uh, or forced to work uh, for extreme amounts of time. So we wanted to try to maintain as much of that as possible while minimizing um, the burden that would be placed on people still working. It does come down to a higher burden for working age adults just by the simple fact of the declining ratio of workers to people who are retired. Um, that's just a fact of demog demography. So, <laughs> um, but within those constraints, we were trying to balance uh, some of these competing demands. So for that, we looked at raising the cap on taxable earnings, increasing the payroll tax, and uh, putting a limiting effect on the increase in benefits by using a different inflation metric. That was the six-person team from the University of Notre Dame who competed recently in the national finals of the fiscal challenge competition. One of the judges for that competition was Diane Lim, who serves as uh, the Democratic Policy Director for the Congressional Select Committee for Economic Disparity and Fairness in Growth. Let's at this point um, take a deep breath, inhale, and, uh, and, and get to one of the programs, <laughs> that, one, of, one of the options that they came up with. Diane, they, they, they were interested in a new con consumer tax. One of them, any one, yes. one of them was. So one of the teams um, had an interesting like kind of storyline through their presentation. They decided to arrange their proposals into three categories, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And <laughs> under the first policy- <laughs> that, has a, that has a ring to it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. So the first, first proposal this team listed under the category of pursuit of happiness was legalizing marijuana and taxing it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So anyway, that was an example of um, some of these teams getting quite creative in thinking outside the usual budget options box, I would say, in terms of um, uh, proposals that would actually grow, basically grow our country's revenue base. Right. It's like think about, um, you know, in a lot of ways, our, our federal tax system has not kept up with 
changes in the economy, right? It's very old. What we tax, um, what we give preferential rates to, it's, it's, you know, what are the deductions and credits we have in our income tax system? The, the, they've been around like forever. And once, of course, we all know this at Concord, that whenever uh, tax expenditure, that's a preference in the tax code for certain activities, once a tax expenditure, a tax subsidy gets put in place, is extremely hard to get rid of it. You know, nevertheless, some at least one team proposed the bold strategy of eliminating all itemized deductions. And the whole panel of judges just said, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) But but I mean, that raises a lot of revenue if you could do that. But so so that's the you know, so the you know, what I liked about the legalized marijuana, you know, think about taxing it at a pretty hefty rate is that is the kind of thinking we need actually not not saying anything about marijuana myself but saying that thinking about how our economy is changing how new things are coming into the economy how new forms of economic activity are coming into the economy and we should think about adjusting our tax system to you know to tax the um, you know our our economic value more comprehensively. So I think that that's a really good strategy. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We'll hear more from the recent national finals of the Collegiate Fiscal Challenge competition coming up after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We're listening today to ideas from college students all over the country who recently competed in the national finals of the Fiscal Challenge competition in Washington, D.C. The challenge each team had was to put the federal budget on a more sustainable path over the next 30 years, trying to hold our national debt to 100% of our gross domestic product, where it is today, instead of where the Congressional Budget Office projects it will climb to about 200% of GDP uh, over that time. We're joined by one of the judges of the competition, Diane Lim. She's the Democratic Policy Director for the Congressional Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness and Growth. You made a, uh, an observation um, that was, I think, really, really important just from your perspective as a judge in this competition over many years, which was that you really saw a shift away from the kind of Chinese menu yeah. of CBO options into a broader strategy. Could you, and that kind of follows from the point you were just making, but could you expand on that? Cause I think it's really, it's surfacing a really important development. Yeah. A lot of the teams, a lot of them, maybe not all of them, but um, at least half of them, I would say included a proposal to invest in universal preschool, right? That is a program that is not thought of as a way to reduce the deficit because it's it requires spending. So, um, and these teams recognized that what they're trying to do is um, get the longer term fiscal outlook on a sustainable path, you know, that they had like a 30 year runway to go with. And so because of that, they intentionally pick some of these proposals that raise spending in the short run, but they feel, and they had estimates to back up, that it grows the economy sufficiently in the longer term, that it actually 
um, raises revenue and reduces the deficit over the longer term. So that is something new that we hadn't seen, you know, several years ago in terms of the proposals that these students would come up with to get us to fiscal sustainability. And it just, um, it just shows that there's a little bit more of a challenge to getting to fiscal sustainability these days because we can't just look at, okay, here are the biggest programs in the federal budget. So how do we cut those big spending programs? How do we boost the big revenue programs, right? It's, you have to kind of think beyond the traditional uh, principles and priorities kind of menu options. And the, although, I don't know, PNP may have universal pre-K in it. I haven't kept up. but Not yet. We, we yeah. may have to so, add that, I think, as an option. Yeah. So I feel like there's um, there is enough talk in the, you know, economic and fiscal policy world these days of things paying off in the long term that involve upfront costs. Now, politically, obviously, the challenge is we still use 10-year budget windows when we score and pass legislation. So that is a hurdle that kind of opens up discussions of should we be dynamically scoring spending proposals as well as revenue proposals. But that is digressing into the topic of another podcast, I'm sure. I ran into <laughs> I, I ran into one of your fellow judges uh, who was coming out uh, on the elevator as he was leaving and uh, and uh, I asked him about the scoring and he said, he's kind of with a, a wink and a nod. He said, I think there's a lot of dynamic scoring going on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there has to be. If you don't dynamically score the spending, the things like universal pre-K, universal pre-K is not going to cut the, bu cut the budget deficit. And the dynamic scoring is just uh, for, for those, it's, it's just the taking into effect a positive economic impact right. that you're assuming from the uh, enactment of the proposal. That brings up a good point on how to get the current generation of young people engaged on the issue of fiscal responsibility. The two-person team from American University, Zachary Roden and Phil Holmes, spoke with Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris about that and why they chose to enter the fiscal competition. With politics nowadays, it's become so much more divisive and it's been so much focused more on cultural issues and sort of touchstone issues in the public. We thought that by addressing issues that are more technical that may not get the attention that they traditionally get in popular media, these issues are still important and these are issues that need to be addressed in the 21st century. So when we saw the opportunity to be able to work through each of these individual issues doing government budgeting, which you know isn't an opportunity that a lot of students get to have, you know, educational opportunity to work with budgeting outside of the workplace, we thought it was an awesome opportunity and definitely something we wanted to try. Seeing the amount of people that were also interested in it gives me a lot of faith. Um, you're obviously never going to have, you know, the majority of the population that's like, ooh, CPI and uh, different adjustments and so exciting. But having a group of people who, you know, dedicate their lives to addressing these issues and making sure we have a next generation that is dedicated to talking about these issues, really, it gave me a lot of hope for what, what we're seeing in the future. It was a great opportunity. Um, you get to meet with people that can offer you like real insight on economic issues, people that have been working in economics their entire lives. The ability to formulate something of our own making, something complex, something we would get to present to experts in the field and then engage with them on, it was just a really good opportunity that we didn't want to pass up. I agree with you. This is really important, especially for your generation, because the impact of this high debt that we have is your generation's really going to feel it a lot more than mine. So 
Are people your age interested in these types of issues or are you outliers? I would say they're definitely not attractive issues. You don't usually win votes talking about complex like numerical issues, the math behind economy, etc. But I would say, if I was referring to our generation as a whole, I'd say there's a lack of fiscal, fiscal education in general, I would say. Um, people know we have a debt. People don't understand the debt. They don't understand what it causes to our economy. They don't understand how to fix it. And they don't particularly think about it because they think it's too complicated to understand. So part of our proposal as well was finding good ways to formulate these pretty complex issues and present them to voters in ways that they could be attracted to them and find political feasibility. What about you, Zach? I think in today's 21st century, uh, there's a lot of issues that need to be addressed. And oftentimes, budgetary and government accounting issues are always sort of pushed to the background because there's always a next crisis. There's always a next you know, pillar that people want to address. And these issues get pushed down to the next generation and the next generation. I think that by addressing these issues now, especially when there's so many other issues that are gaining all the attention. I think there's a real opportunity here to, you know, get honest work between both parties to be able to address something maybe without the the, the public attention and scrutiny on every detail that you had in the past. What would be a good way to reach people in your generation about how important it is to pay attention to these fiscal issues? Like you said, they're not the sexiest issues. They're really important. Um, but what kinds of things do you think would break through that people of my generation and older need to be paying attention to? I think the biggest thing is just reaching out to younger people and telling them that you can have your cake and eat it too. You can implement all of the large government policies or implement some of the smaller reductions in government policies that you want as the American people while still at the same time working towards doing it fiscally responsibly. A lot of times Americans when they implement, when they demand policy implementation, they want to go about it as quickly as possible and sort of ignore the, the nuts and bolts on the way uh, by telling Americans that we can do this fairly, we can do this equitably, we can achieve what we want to achieve while also doing what we need to do in terms of government management. I think that that's a message that I believe resonates across the aisle on both sides. What do you think, Phil? Um, I think it's it might be in terms of packaging and presentation. So. You have something like an increase on the corporate tax rate that would be difficult to gain, but I think you can get a lot of public support for a measure like that because it can be simply framed and simply understood. If you're on the left, you can frame it as taking money from those at the top and returning it to the people. It's a very simple concept, very popular. So I would say just even though it's often a gross oversimplification and it kind of does a disservice to actual fiscal policy, a lot of the times you do have to describe things in those stark ideals to get people on board. I am passionate about the economic issues. The fiscal, fiscal policy, the deficit, is not the one I'm most passionate about, but it's still up there. People need to take a little more of a long-term view on this. Just because you're not feeling any economic squeeze or pressure in the next coming couple years from our current deficit doesn't mean you won't or your kids won't or their kids won't. So I want people to view this as about the long-term viability of the economy of the United States. That was the voice of Phil Holmes, an American University student who recently competed in the national finals of the fiscal challenge here in Washington, D.C. We've been hearing today from a number of the collegiate teams who were finalists. You know, I, I, one of the things that, uh, that, that I wanted to close an observation um, is that those that wanted to do more, uh, and, and there were many that did, 
did not link that with the idea that deficits don't matter. I mean, it wasn't like, well, we can just pile on debt. I mean, they did take a you know, they, they, they wanted to know how these things could be maintained uh, on a sustainable basis. And that was why some of the proposals had much greater revenue because they did want to do more spending, which they, which they considered as investments in the future. And it's, uh, I think, not surprising that younger people would be more interested in uh, investments in the future. Uh, you know, Look, we've spent the last several decades investing in 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 the elderly, and that's you know paying off for for my generation. Um, but I think that the idea of having um, the federal government do more on the investment side of the economy with family policy and particularly with climate change, which is a, a totally new thing. I mean, uh, that's just. You know, uh, the economic and budgetary impacts of that are very sketchy at the moment, except as I told the students when I talked to them, I've seen many estimates. I haven't seen anybody that said this is going to be a good thing. <laughs> it's going to help grow the economy and, and uh, restrain the budget. So I thought that I would echo what everybody else said. It, it, it did seem sort of a pragmatic uh, approach, which was uh, very, very refreshing. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, uh, Concord Coalition National Field Director, Phil Smith, Communications Director of Harris, and our good friend, uh, economist mom, Diane Lim, and I have been discussing a recent fiscal competition on Capitol Hill with uh, students from six teams from all around the country devising their own plans and having to defend them for uh, (coughs) stabilizing the debt-to-GDP ratio. That's all the time we have for this week. Join us again next week for another episode of Facing the Future. 